The number one thing regulators can and should do is respond to changing technology with updating regulations. There's ways in which attacking the questions of crypto leads to wins for the industry, for consumers, for investors, for the regulators as well. And I think that is the mindset that I wish was more prevalent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show for you folks today. Not only are we back in studio, which is always a treat, we have on the other side of the mic, Justin Slaughter, Policy Director at Paradigm. So we're going to take a brief pause from staring at the charts and try to teleport ourselves to the policy world, the Hill, get a sense of what's happening uh, around the SEC, obviously. And then, you know, there are quite a number of bills that have been making their way through Congress on the crypto front. Justin is someone who has the proverbial finger on the pulse, and we're excited to finally welcome him on the show. This isn't the first time he's chatted with the block, but it's the first time he's graced us with his voice, as we as we say. Justin, thanks for taking the time to join the program. It's my pleasure, Frank. Uh, really awesome to be able to be here and have this conversation with you, given, as you point out, there's so much going on. And hopefully I can provide at least a little light on this miasma and clarity. Yeah, it's, it's funny because for most of uh, navigating the slings and arrows of the regulatory environment was happening within the or with the backdrop of a, of a relatively bearish market. Now things have kind of turned. We can maybe get into how that changes the the political dynamic for uh, Chairman Gensler and others uh, keen to uh, make policy in crypto. But I want to start with basically this anecdote. Uh, before we turn on the mics, I was telling you about my most recent trip down to Washington, D.C. for the Securities Traders Association uh, Market Structure Conference. And it was it was fascinating. And I'm sure you'll find it fascinating the extent to which so many folks uh, outside or on the peripheral of crypto have their own uh, beefs with um, this agency from a number of different proposals that the agency has put forward. So crypto is not, we like to think of, uh, or, or sometimes we operate within our own bubble, no pun intended, but there's um, the the trading world writ large has has had a lot of issues navigating sort of a, a degree of not necessarily regulatory uncertainty to the extent of crypto, but a lot of regulatory overhang. So uh, maybe we can we can start there with this idea of crypto not necessarily being super special. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of background for me. I, at the start of the Biden admin, was director of the Office of Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs at the SEC and senior advisor to acting SEC chair, Allison Heron Lee. She's the Democratic chair from the day Joe Biden was sworn in, January 20, 2021, until when Gary Gensler was sworn in. And a thing that's often forgotten is that crypto was not a focus of the SEC or really any agency at the start of the Biden admin. And that's because it was not focused on as a topic during the campaign. It was not in D.C.'s focus in general over the previous several years, ever since the ICO boom fizzled out in 2017-2018. Instead, it was all these other rules. And the SEC has been really focused on a whole writ large number, the most proposals almost by any chair ever, 
of rules to change market structure, to change uh, rules under climate, to change rules about private equity, to change rules about reporting. And a few of them have gotten done, but not many. So for a lot of finance, with the exception of banks, big banks have not gotten a lot of SEC rules this time. There has been this kind of writ large movement on all these regulations. And crypto's missed out on that. Crypto, other than the custody rule, uh, has not really been a focus of the SEC in terms of regulation. Said there's been all the enforcement action. Exactly. So that's where the dichotomy is. So is that just, again, a derivative of the FTX meltdown, right? Um, maybe we would have seen less enforcement had that not have transpired. Um, but there there seems to also be this element of, of uh, stubbornness, right, uh, as it pertains to at least the the approval of a spot ETF is, is that fair to say? I mean, I think there's resistance, right? It required a lawsuit uh, to the DC circuit where Grayscale won three zero over this summer that the SEC acted arbitrary capriciously, which is admin law speak for not allowed. I, I would say to disagree with you, I don't think the lack of regulatory action um, was because of FTX. In general, there's a cadence to how policymaking works in DC at the start of every term, you know you have four years if you're in administration, because by the end of the term, you don't know if the party you're working for is going to win re-election again. So you spend the first year or two, at most, the very beginning of a third year, getting ready, and then you finalize rules. So by the time FTX happened, it was the end of 2022, and there was no real movement on major regulation in general. I, I tend to think a lot of DC writ large just wasn't ready for crypto. Because, and I say this a lot, this industry has an amazing ability to have these events every four years. And by the time the energy is built up to deal with it, then, you know, the prices crash. There's a, you know, a sense of a bubble bursting and it's gone away and the energy goes away again, even though the industry comes back then even bigger and wilder the next time. I saw this personally when I was following crypto the previous time I was in the government, the CFTC. Understood. So the contention here is that a lot of what maybe was in the works from a policy perspective, at least from the perspective of the agency specifically, the SEC, was kind of already – the wheels were already in motion well before uh, FTX. Yes. I mean I think in general by the end of a second year of an admin, you can pretty much know what the trajectory of any issue, crypto or otherwise, is going to be at an agency. By that point, people have been there for a while. They know what their priorities are. They know what their priorities are not. And we got a plan for everything that's, you know, established. I tend to think part of the issue writ large for crypto in D.C. beyond the SEC is that nobody entered the Biden admin thinking, I want to work on crypto. This was true even with, you know, the executive order where there was a lot of, I would say, skepticism about working on it inside the Biden White House, mm -hmm. is my understanding, because nobody came into the Biden White House to work on crypto. They ended up doing it because it was in the news. But until you start to have people who kind of come in saying, I want to work on crypto policy, that is a obstacle to getting crypto policy done. So what is the state of crypto policy right now? Right now, I think we're very much in a holding pattern in a lot of ways. There is action on the Hill on a couple of bills. The stablecoin bill is most notable, but also the market structure mm -hmm. bill. But with the exception really of stablecoins, I don't think there's much expectation of anything passing before the election. That's not surprising. It's in general these days, the campaign takes up the entirety of the fourth year of an administration. Things that are not buttoned up don't happen pretty uh, quickly into 2024. But at the same time, we're past the point of people saying this is not an issue. I mean, I testified earlier this summer 
at the Energy and Commerce Committee, which is not usually focused on crypto, on blockchain and supply chains. And a lot of members uh, understood that this is an issue that they need to learn about. That is in many ways what robbed us uh, by the events of 2022, is that a lot of the interest died away of having to focus on crypto. I remember people saying, you know, crypto will be gone in a few months, don't worry about it. Now I think people see that it's persisted, that it is, you know, regained some of its previous size and interest. And that is, I think, driving more fruitful conversations about, okay, how do we actually regulate crypto? It's interesting. So do you think that like there's been, so it's, it's a funny point, the change in market dynamics, price looking better. Um, I mean, I mean, from um, a technology perspective, I, I think we're seeing a lot of breakthroughs across a number of fronts. Does a, a bull market change the, the political and policy paradigm, no pun intended, um, and does it maybe change the calculus of, of Chair Gensler? So it's a good question. On the latter one, it's hard to say. Gary, um, who's, you know, a energetic soul, if you've ever seen one, and is more energy than I'll ever have in my lifetime. Um, beyond that, I think the way I would describe it is that D.C. abhors volatility. There is a sense from talking to a lot of policymakers, both that are former policymakers and, you know, regular policymakers, um, that most products have an inherent value. And so people say to me, what's the inherent value of a crypto token? I'm like, well, it's a market. It depends on what the actual, you know, supply and demand dynamics are, especially for commodities. What's the inherent, you know, value of a, you know, a lot of gold or of a lot of cotton? It's hard, you know, it depends upon the buyer, the seller, or market dynamics. That, however, makes it such that when things are highly volatile, it's harder for them to appreciate what's going on. Beyond that, it's always the case that when people sense something is growing and is exciting, it's you know more positive. But at the same time, when things are falling, when they're shrinking, when things are going wrong, there's less interest. I think in some ways, the volatility of this space has been an impediment to regulators and policymakers looking at crypto. Because there is a sense that something is super volatile, there must be something wrong with it. In reality, I think the volatility is itself indicative of how new it is. New things tend to be more volatile than established things. That's true in a lot of markets. No, it's a good point. I, I often talk about this with folks. It would be great if crypto could just stay, you know, not bull market, not bear market, but just flat for a, a year or two so that we can kind of uh, figure it out, as it were. I think that'd be a, particularly helpful from a policy pers- uh, on the policy side of things. So I, I've once had someone say to me, why is it the tokens can't just not trade? <laughs> like, well, they wouldn't. The system doesn't work then. Exactly. Um, Okay. So from a use case perspective, when when you think about when you first joined the firm, uh, has, is there, is the sort of understanding of the benefit price aside, like, is there momentum growing among uh, policymakers? Right. I mean, the fact that we have two bills that, you know, probably won't get signed by the president. We can talk about that. But the fact that they're, you know, you know, going through committee and, and are uh, obviously there's a lot of changes with with uh, Republican leadership, which adds some thorniness. We can get into that as well. But who would have thought that we'd have two bills like this going through the process? That's significant. 
Bipartisan bills, exactly, too. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you got a significant number of Democrats in the House Financial Services Committee, but the Agriculture Committee bill on market structure, the FIT 21 bill, that was voice voted. Almost every Democrat on the committee voted in favor of it. I think you have seen it, and I'll, I'll look forward to discussing this. I'm still optimistic we'll get a stablecoin bill. Stablecoins, I think, even a lot of critics admit they see the utility of them which to me is progress. When you just having people start to accept that crypto has created things that are of value and use, that is the first hardest step in many ways for skeptics. And beyond that, we are seeing, of course, more you know applications that are useful, more that are applying to additional um, spaces. And I think that'll accelerate into the next year. But even policymakers, I think, have in many cases, gotten over the line of understanding, okay, I see the utility, I see why this is worthy of support. But also, the fear that this innovation will leave the U.S., the jobs attendant, the growth attendant, the ability to work with the government, that is also something policymakers understand with greater, uh, you know, intensity. There's um, growing, um, I mean, we saw we saw a uh, Republican presidential hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy uh, do a podcast recently with our folks over, our friends over at the chopping block where he kind of outlined how he thought chair Gensler was, um, you know, filling this power void or grabbing powers from Congress in, in some way to, to regulate crypto. Is there this sort of, um, is there a tension between the two? And do you think that, um, is it is it overly simplistic to say, say that Congress at large is more pro crypto than the regulators that uh, seem to find themselves um, overseeing it? Well, I, here's what I'd say. Right, um, people forget this. That within Fit Twenty One, there was a provision tucked away at the bottom of the bill. It was a long bill that said the SEC has to consider innovation when it's considering its primary mission. Right now, the SEC doesn't. It, people forget. The job of Congress is everything. They consider all parts of policy, economic growth, innovation, national defense, foreign policy, jobs. The job of regulators is much more circumscribed. They are much more around saying no or trying to fit things into an extant body of regulation. If you want new regulation that you know, or new things that respond to changes, that's where you go to Congress. I tend to think that the SEC's position on Capitol Hill is weakened this summer because of the court losses in Ripple, because of the court loss in um, Grayscale. The more courts say crypto assets are not securities, there's disclarity here, the easier it is to get policymakers to say, okay, I understand why we need legislation, because the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, all the alphabet soup of agencies can't just deal with this on their own. And this is important, right, because there's a view inside, especially the Republican Party, but more broadly, that, you know, judges are going to be more hostile to administrative agencies grabbing new technologies without explicit legislative permission. I thought this is why it's one of the reasons progressives like myself should be supportive of legislation, because I'm very nervous about going to the Supreme Court and having a 6-3 conservative judiciary Supreme Court say, actually, the SEC has no power here and no power in anything without explicit legislative approval. Uh, one sense that I get from an, a wide range of firms, uh, just to sort of dovetail off of you, uh, uh, sort of noting your your progressive stance and your background, obviously it's self-evident 
and what you were, where you were, for whom you've worked. Um, it, this seems to be almost one of the biggest priorities of a lot of firms in crypto that are active on the policy front is to sort of get democratic support. And we've seen this almost embodied, right, in one congressman, Richie Torres. Can you walk us through maybe just like sort of um, how something like that works, maybe like getting something to be bipartisan? Uh, in a world that is so, not to sound trite, partisan, right? Um, how how can you take a technology and sort of get a bunch of people to agree on uh, a singular prescription for it? Is it as simple as, hey, jobs are important? What I would say, right, is that to take a step back, the nature of all issues in Washington is that over time, given an absence of effort, they will partisanize. They will become connected with one side or the other. That is more than anything else a function of our current politics, which I think we all agree has various issues. Crypto is fascinating because when I, I was first uh, a Hill staffer for then Congressman Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts, who then got to the Senate a few months after Elizabeth Warren as the other Democratic Senator of Massachusetts, and I was his general counsel. In those early days, and I first encountered crypto doing oversight of oil and gas futures markets back in 2012, um, Crypto was more something the Democrats were interested in the Republicans. And you had a mm. transition over time, I think, where as the industry grew, you saw more of an interest in it from, after some time, Republicans. But part of why I'm in crypto, and I think a lot of us across the ideological spectrum, are that we think this is a technology and it's useful to any number of ends. I view this and the ethos of decentralization as positive for worker power, positive for ordinary people finding ways to take ownership of their own lives, you know, something that is, you know, kind of antithetical to big established power bases in Washington, in New York, in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley. But the way you reach people is you have to reach them on things that they find appealing. My hope is that we can stress to other progressives, and there are people like Richie Torres, there are people like Josh Gottheimer, there's people like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, um, who find crypto appealing for all the reasons I've just cited. And sometimes it's also saying to them, look, the number one thing regulators can and should do is respond to changing technology with updating regulations. Personally, I worked on the implementation of Dodd-Frank. And one of the things I learned from that experience is that it was the deregulation of the swaps market in 1999-2000 against the wishes of then CFTC Chair Brooksley Bourne at the request of then Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, Treasury Undersecretary Gary Gensler and others to deregulate swaps because we don't think these things need direct supervision. The House voted on this with like 400 votes. Bernie Sanders voted for it, amazingly enough. And the end result was this deregulated, unregulated market that in connection with the housing bubble almost blew up the world. It caused a financial crisis. I came out of that experience and then tried to pick up the pieces saying, never again should we wait for something to crash before we regulate it. It's important to regulate it as you go. That's an impossible task in some ways because it means government has to be up to speed on technology. But I think it's the best way forward for everybody. And that's a point I've tried to keep making to people. Well, thankfully, we've seen our fair share of crashes. So maybe that in some way helps. Um, okay, maybe it would be helpful um, from a from just an interesting practical perspective. Walk us through these two bills. And how does it? They're both they're both sort of um, viewed favorably among among uh, policy wonks within 
this industry. To what degree? To what degree does their added clarity and prescriptions add stability um, to this market for operators? So the two bills, right? There's the Fit 21 bill, which is the financial innovation technology for the 21st century bill, also known as the market structure bill. And there's the payment stablecoins bill. We'll do the second one first because it's actually easier. Basically, what the stablecoins bill does, it creates a system for stablecoins to be federally or state regulated and then have full access to key aspects of the financial system. The idea being that you establish for very highly backed stable coins. Like you have to be backed with like treasuries or cash. You can't be backed with, you know, very strange derivatives or even I think foreign currencies. These then can be easily utilized inside the financial system, but also that there are better oversight protections for them. It's probably the case that not many stable coins currently would clear with this. There's also, I think, a two-year uh, moratorium on basically new Terra Lunas. They basically defined it as like algorithmic, non-collateralized stable coins. It was like, if you, you can't make another Terra Luna, basically. In addition, some existing banks can issue stable coins, which you might say is good or bad based on your opinion of having banks enter crypto. The other one, the bigger one, is a bill that basically creates a regulatory rubric between the CFTC and the SEC for most assets. The core of the bill is this idea that assets start generally as securities, but they can morph based on work by the CFTC and the SEC together into decentralized tokens that then get regulated as commodities. It is you know, a complicated system. It is one that a lot of people in the industry are nervous about, not least because of how it is pretty quiet on how DeFi works, but that's the crux of it. And in addition to that, it creates a whole boat of regulatory requirements by both the SEC for their part of the markets and the CFTC. The basic idea is that this does what Mika, the Markets and Crypto Asset Bill in Europe does, or what the UK is doing, which is here is clear-cut new laws on crypto. You you know now have a regime that fits crypto because the biggest issue so far is nobody's found a way to make the current laws fit perfectly for registration within crypto firms. You know, there's nobody who's found a way to really make a cross regulator exchange function because in every other part of the market, equities and commodities are very highly discrete. It's not the case that things ping pong back and forth between the SEC and the CFTC. And we're unique like that in the US. Other regulators don't separate out securities versus commodities. Here we do. It means also there's different budgets for each agency. But the idea is now people will be able to know what they're doing that reduces the risk of um, running afoul of the regulators. And it hopefully can be able to bring more companies into the regulatory ambit and let the regulator focus on the really bad actors. Can I ask you something of a funny question since you kind of always brought in the uh, global uh, competition, I guess you could say. Do you think U.S. regulators, SEC, CFTC, do they care about you know, the, the, the language or the marketing that's often used from more, more, um, without sounding, um, not to use this in a pejorative sense, but secondary or, or tertiary financial regulators, um, saying that they're welcoming and have a clear cut, uh, regulatory framework. Do they care? Does that like, is there, is there some bit of, you know, if you're at a hedge fund, um, I'm in a news company. If if there's a news company out there that's beating us to stories, if there's a hedge fund that has better um, returns than you, there's a bit of a competitive dynamic. D 
Does that exist within agencies like the SEC or CFTC? There definitely is natural competition in terms of people liking better Or is headlines. all the competition just between the two of I them? I know it's more than that, right? You can find if you look closely like I have. There, there are, I think, nine agencies represented at FSOC. And part of the great and terrible challenge of crypto is crypto touches almost every single one of those nine in various ways. CFPB, right, just did a digital wallet roll the other week for the first time. So, you know, they're starting to really engage. It's interesting. I think a lot of U.S. regulators think about the globe as, first off, something where we're the leader. And it's true. Usually the U.S. leads the way at the International Organization of Securities Regulators, IOSCO, or at the Basel Committee. Nobody, though, wants markets to grow really big outside of the U.S. because then they're outside of our you know watch. But you also don't want to feel like other countries are setting the standards, which usually does not happen. In non-finance, but in tech, this did happen on privacy. People forget this now. The U.S. has never really done a privacy law. Meanwhile, you probably, everyone on this listening podcast, every time you go to a website, you have to get that little box saying, accept all cookies or reject all cookies. That is a European law. That's the GDPR, which because the Europeans got their act together, did a law first, everyone around the world just follows the European standard. But in finance, more commonly to this point, the U.S. is largely the standard setter. What happens if standards are set abroad and people's map to MECA or UK law? Well, then that'll be a first, but be something different. I think there that is something that keeps some policymakers up at night in the U.S. Is is the standard being set somewhere else? But when we ask for a standard, right, it, the, the the sort of retort from from the head of our securities regulators is that this standard exists. Do you think there's any? Is that is that? First off, is that an oversimplification of, of his stance, perhaps? But is it is it a fair response? I mean, if you look back to the laws on the book and sort of to the Dow report that we got a few years ago, is there enough? I mean, here's what I'd say, right, which is I was very sympathetic to this stance back five or six years ago because I did think it was – there's inherently a risk when you're a regulator of if you're too fast to respond to guidance in nascent industry, maybe you'll create loopholes. But – Personally, then I did, you know, consulting work. I was at the SEC and it's been now over 10 years since a lot of initial activity uh, on crypto. CFTC held that Bitcoin was a commodity in 2015 in the coin flip case. The Dow report was 2016. At some point, when one company can't figure out the rules on the company, when 10 companies can't figure out the rules on the company, when nobody can figure out the rules and hundreds of companies say they can't figure out the rules, that's a point where it's reasonable for the regulator to say, okay, here's some additional regulatory guidance. I also just think, though, part of the fear of a lot of policymakers, this is my personal opinion, is that they are afraid that any new rules they create for crypto will be weaker than existing rules. There's no upside for the people. There's no upside for regulators. They're just creating you know, loopholes. It's the idea we perfected securities regulation and commodities regulation. And I just reject that. I think there's a lot of potential here, even if you're a regulator, to like change here. People, you know, we've never regulated spot commodities. A lot of the bills in place would actually do that for the first time in history. We've never had independent funding for the CFTC off of fees like the SEC partially gets. That's was in some of the bills discussed before. There's ways in which attacking the questions of crypto leads to wins for the industry, for consumers, for investors, for the regulators as well. And I think that is the mindset that I wish was more prevalent. And it's a really interesting point that we, we I don't think we've unpacked on the show. Um, so 
to, to what extent you also, so you obviously have, um, a number of industry participants that are asking for clarity. I'm sure that's a large part of why a paradigm hires someone like you, right? It's like, Hey, all of our portfolio companies have these same questions. They're all confused about the same thing. But now you also have, um, a BlackRock entering the fray. How, to what degree does that change the dynamic, right? There's often a lot of, uh, Twitter, um, banter about how they've, um, had, uh, however many it is, 500, I think it is, funds approved to one, you know, if, if you're looking at it from a, like a scoreboard, the SEC has won twice to their 500. Does that change the calculus as well for the agency? I think it does, because in this way, and I'm going to tell a brief story. There's a famous vignette in politics from the career mm-hmm. of Abner Mikva. Abner Mikva is a rare person who was a member of Congress he was a D.C. Circuit judge and he was White House counsel. He did, you know, basically everything. And when he was a young man in Chicago, he went down to volunteer for the Adlai Stevenson campaign in like 1952. Shows up at a grizzled uh, ward veteran and the guy says, who are you? He's like, I'm Adlai Stevenson. I'm here to volunteer. And the guy says, who sent you? And the guy said, nobody sent me. And the man famously said, we don't want nobody that nobody sent. So much of politics is about not what your position is, but about who is vouching for you. Who do you align with? That's a function of the inherent difficulties people have with creating trust in politics, but also in understanding issues. So as a result, when a bunch of crypto native companies come and say, this is really great, there is you know some excitement and some skepticism. They're just a bunch of Adelaide Stevens. <laughs> I mean, but then, you know, it's the same with PayPal and their stablecoin. I've seen several skeptics, you know, in the crypto skeptic communities say, well, you know, this just, you know, maybe these guys can actually make it work because the problem is with crypto is it's filled with people from crypto. If you have people from, you know, BlackRock or from PayPal, I'll view it differently. I'm like, look, at one point I was frustrated by that because the idea is it shouldn't matter who you are. It should matter what the ideas are. But at this point, I tend to think I'm just tired of people getting wrapped up with the idea that there's nothing here. And if it takes BlackRock and PayPal or other entities to get other folks in policy over the line, think great. really, yeah, I think that's I think that's well said. Um, so it's definitely it's definitely a a tailwind, and we saw that in the price action in the wake of of their just them submitting um, a a um, their fund. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> it'll be funny to see the extent to which Larry Fink becomes like the new. Uh, not wonder kid because he's, you know, taking maybe Sam Bankman Fried's place as like this, this vanguard of, of the space, no pun intended there as well. Um, maybe that one was slightly intended, but okay. So looking forward to the next six months, obviously approval of a fund is probably top of mind for most people. Most people think that it's going to happen. Is there anything else from a policy perspective that you think folks should be paying attention to. And honestly, most people think, or a lot of people, I'm not going to say who, maybe I should, uh, think that regulatory overhang is sort of like the cap, is sort of like keeping um, the space encumbered to some extent. Could you argue that there are things on the horizon that might speak to uh, to the opposite of that? So what I would say, right, is that this is perhaps one 
disagreement I have with a lot of folks in crypto and that I don't think of this as a mountain to be scaled as much as it's an endless series of relay races. When we finish with getting regular clarity for which kinds of tokens are securities versus commodities, that unlocks many additional issues from DeFi, obviously, to a whole host of issues around things like MEV, not even starting with then the questions of how crypto and other nascent technologies might interact and everything about right-sizing U.S. regulation versus EU regulation versus Japan. I tend to think, though, the next year, there's certainly a lot of discussion about national security, uh, in part because of the significant role of Senator Warren. Senator Warren is a genius, you know, focus on a lot of financial regulation. On crypto, I think she and I just fundamentally disagree. I think this space is something that's worthy of support and fostering growth in to fight the established Goliaths of Wall Street and big tech. But that's a focus. I'm also following how things emerge in the campaign. Political campaigns can have a surprising impact on policy, not least because the things that get brought up during a campaign lead to the key campaigns. You know, we only have two major ones in this country, but a lot of minor ones getting policy positions on that topic and then having to potentially implement them in their next term. If someone asks about crypto during a debate um, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, that would then would lead to, for the first time, I think, having a firm Biden position on crypto, which we still don't have because, again, it wasn't a focus in 2020. So that's something else. I don't really think he's on. ever even brought it up. Well, he did the executive order, but it's very interesting, right, in that it's different than what with AI. With AI... I think the Biden team can more easily comprehend its utility. And that's partly because it is about something that science fiction has written about for so long, in my opinion. While crypto is fundamentally about how does the logistics of our financial system work? And unless you're a nerd like me for financial system you know, logistics or my very talented policy manager, Brendan Malone, this is not something you think about every day. People like to say, well, why do we need, you know, digital money, we have a credit card. I'm like, well, but you're paying for that, you know, based on the prices that the business merchant has to pay to Visa, and then they pass them on to you. I mean, hell, I was at a car dealership earlier this uh, month, getting my Honda minivan, you know, fixed. There's a sign on the first time in, outside DC saying any charges on a credit card, we're going to pay charge an additional 3% to you to basically cover our credit card fees. And I'm like, right here, another great example of why crypto is needed, because if I'm no longer getting any money and losing money from my credit card, now I really do want something that has direct payment. So I tend to think that is one thing that I'd be really curious to see is what happens if you actually push this in the middle of a presidential campaign. And do you anticipate that it will become a topic? Now, we'll put you on the spot. Uh, when Donald Trump and Joe Biden debate uh, a year from now, which which is... I don't know if they're going to debate. But which is becoming... <laughs> I, I tend to think I the more crypto grows, right? And it's you see it grow, right? Because it's so popular among the young, the harder it is to keep out of the public's mindset. So my expectation is at some point next, over the next year, we're going to see it pop up as a question to a candidate or come up in a town hall. It will be funny if it becomes, if it, if it sort of breaks and we've talked a bit in this conversation about the extent to which it's not partisan, but I could see it like dividing parties as it kind of has on the democratic side. Um, but I could see like, 
is it is it Chris Christie and Nikki Haley who are anti crypto, and it's Vivek Ramaswamy and and Donald Trump who are pro crypto, in in some way, and then on the other side, it's uh, you know obviously Biden is is running. A, you know that's a whole different topic, but it it's really possible. But also, what I'd say right is that this is where the wonderfully large user base of crypto is so important, right? The 20% of American voters have owned crypto or used crypto. It's in their power to say to, you know, members of Congress at town halls or to call up the office of the senator or congressman they're in and say, I actually really believe in crypto. I support crypto. I want reasonable regulation, legislation on crypto, or to ask that at a, you know, of a presidential candidate. I mean, anyone who's in crypto who's an American voter has power that they don't fully appreciate. Mm. I've seen offices on Capitol Hill change their opinions about an issue based on five phone calls. It's amazing to think about. Our democracy at work. Well, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate the color and context. Justin, thanks so much for joining the program. Good to see you, Frank. Where can we lead uh, listeners, uh, you know, uh, uh, folks who are watching, because we will put this video up on, on the YouTube. If they want to learn more, if maybe um, they, they, policy.paradigm.xyz, uh, my Twitter handle at JBSDC, or which is like an X, X handle. Um, <laughs> other members of the policy team, Rodrigo Serra, um, RSSH273, um, Brendan Malone, Brendan P. Malone. Um, yeah, Alex Grieve. I mean, the, I can send, I can have our team um, at SBS send you a list of Absolutely. Teams, Twitter uh, feed. But the big one's policy.paradigm.xyz. Uh, it's quite the operation that you have over there. What are, Maybe we can also close with, uh, you know, we've touched on a lot today, but that, that whole cr- crew, w- what are the priorities? W- what should we be anticipating over the next few months? I mean, our view very much is that we try to create a crypto native policy function. I'm, I'm 41 years old. I'm a senior citizen <laughs> ever since the word. And what we wanted is that a policy operation that reflected crypto, it didn't just say it spoke for crypto because stolen valor is so problematic in this space. So for us, it's trying to be research driven like our research function is. It's trying to be deeply data driven. It's trying to be also people who are seen as good faith technical experts can explain how this works. I think the best work we do is when we have a lobbyist, Alex Grieve. I'm not a lobbyist. Um, I'm not good at it. Uh, who can go and, you know, explain here is how Uniswap works with the laptop. We have Brendan Malone who can do deep dives into how stable coins print different days of the week based on different stable coins. We have the policy lab that Brendan and Rodrigo Serra did. We had the amicus briefs of Rodrigo. We are trying to do something new, which is a truly crypto native policy function but also one that is approachable for policymakers, which is in kind of ways my job. I'm the, you know, the swamp creature uh, <laughs> who is trying to become more crypto native with every day as I move toward enlightenment. And good luck with that endeavor. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good to be here, Frank. Pleasure is ours. And we'll be back with you again with another great guest. Thanks for tuning in. Thank mm-hmm. you.